you've ever had a class in psychology, you know that one of the central debates that takes place is, how are we who we are? And that turns out to be a complicated interaction between our genetic structure and our environment. And I would say the cultures are no different than that. So we have both the people that have come to a culture, and so they form, I guess, what we could in this metaphor call the genetic structure, those who, again, came together. And then you have the environment itself, the, the interaction between those individuals and the, the, uh, the location itself and how it goes about impacting uh, people as they come to this particular area. So we have, you know, uh, different cultural activities that are associated with uh, people who live close to the ocean, and they're very, very different than people who live in, say, a mountainous region. It's no different with the American South. And that's what this uh, podcast is going to be about, of course, the American South in general. But this particular podcast episode is going to look at some of the main uh, characteristics of the four groups, the four big groups, not not all the groups, not an exhaustive list of the groups by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a one podcast. It's not terribly long, but it is going to look at those four main groups and how those four main groups um, came to the South and how they came to influence the South. Let's get started. This is really counting as episode two because I would say that episode one is on YouTube right now. I'm going to make sure that that's linked in the description of this particular video below. I may eventually transfer that over to a podcast as well. But one of the central concerns that I had, one of the, the central topics inside of that YouTube video is ethnocentrism. And it's gonna be a running theme throughout this course. Um, how do you uh, not judge a culture by your own cultural standards? How do we get outside of the South in order to see the American South in a fair and balanced way? And that's not at all an easy thing to do. Um, you have to break those cultural traditions. You have to be able to see beyond your own horizons. And for a lot of people, that's a very difficult thing. Um, and I want to return to that right here at the beginning of this particular episode, because one of the first groups that we're going to look at would be the Native Americans. And I like to bring that up when I start talking about the Native Americans, because one of the chief mistakes that I see students make uh, when they take this, this class with me is they tend to say things like, the Native Americans were already here in the South. Well, that's a huge mistake because that's a very ethnocentric statement. The Native Americans were already here from a European perspective, which means that you're evaluating the Native Americans' right to be here and their location here from a very European, uh, what would be called Eurocentric standard. And so it, this is, you know, just picturing yourself as a European and you, you've come across the ocean and uh, there are these people and they're already here. And that's not the case at all. <laughs> these people arrived here in a particular way um, after a particular period of time. They came, uh, as, as near as people can tell, and, and you know, this is a, a changing science. So if you're listening to this, you know, I don't know, 10 years down the road, and somebody has come up with something different in the meantime, you'll have to forgive me. Um, I might not be up on it as much as I should be, uh, because it does change constantly. But as near as people can tell, um, uh, these individuals arrived across the Beringout land bridge. Uh, it's my understanding that there's also some evidence now that uh, Native Australians crossed the Pacific Ocean and uh, ended up in South America as well. But it remains to be seen as of the making of this podcast exactly how uh, prevalent that influence is. I think that they're looking into the genetic structures. 
So there's an amazing story about how these individuals crossed those distances in order to come to the Americas. And this is, again, you know, based on the numbers that I've seen 10 to 15,000 years ago, um, and that number seems to be changing constantly, but uh, they did cross, again, the land bridge, which would be between Russia and Alaska, modern Russia and Alaska, uh, into the Americas, and then and then sweep their way down, or again, uh, what would be, I guess, around Tierra, Tierra del Fuego, um, in that location, and sweep their way upward. Then when they got here, um, they there's evidence that they brought it, things like horses with them, and uh, th those horses eventually went extinct because according also to the evidence they they basically when they were in these colder climates they ate their way through some of these animals and then they they spread further and further to the south um, and then eventually horses were unknown to them so this image that you may have in your head of oh they, look there's a native american riding across the plain on a horse and um you know they, they're they've always been doing this they, they have not always been doing this they um in fact when the europeans first arrived and they were on horses uh, some Native Americans were very much intimidated because they thought that it was just one giant creature. Think of it like a, perhaps something like a centaur. Okay, uh, but once they saw the value of horses, many tribes uh, readapted to them and began to use them, especially for purposes of hunting. So once they arrived in this particular region, um, they did set up shop, so to speak, and they uh, they probably aren't what you think. Again, traditionally in, in our heads, we have this image of, you know, like migratory individuals and they moved all over the place and um, they, they were nomadic and they lived in these little teepees. And um, that's just not the case. I mean, you're talking about two giant continents of people uh, who have lived here for thousands of years. And uh, so it, this would be, I think, the equivalent of saying, uh, oh, well, all of North America just has the same culture as the South. And you're still only halfway there because now you're talking about North and South. Uh, America at the same time, you know, with all of these individuals. So they had a, a very complicated culture. And then a short podcast like this, I couldn't possibly do them justice. I'll just say a couple of quick things. Uh, one, not all of them were migratory. Some of them were. Uh, some of them moved from place to place and uh, chased game or what have you. But uh, many of them were settled. And they actually had quite large cities, uh, including, by the way, in the area that I'm making this podcast, which is in North Carolina. Uh, Stanley County, Cabarrus County, uh, those sorts of locations. You had uh, people called mound builders, and they would, uh, you know, set up these locations. And, and from everything that I've seen, this was done either for either uh, again religious purposes or done for defense. Because you know, if we go back to uh, Sun Tzu, the high ground is always better. So if you have a giant mound, you know, you have the high ground automatically. And so you, you know, you build your barricade around that and now you're doing quite well because now you can shoot easily at the people outside of it and uh, you're doing quite well inside of it. Um, so th there's not one language group. There are multiple language groups across these individuals. Um, they, again, ad adapted to their circumstances and had a quite complicated societies. Uh, if we think of the Incans, for example, the Incans, had, uh, I'm not going to pronounce this the right way. You're going to have to forgive me. You'll have to go look up the word, but uh, I believe it's called quipu, which is a writing that is based around tying knots into ropes. Um, so that, you know, they have writing. They just don't have writing like Europeans would think of writing. And so, again, I want to warn you from the start, don't try to judge them from European standards. These are, are people that uh, were quite varied 
and had complicated societies in, in some cases. In other cases, um, you know, if we take what uh, Devaka saw when he came through, and you can go listen to the American uh, Lit 231 podcast for a little bit more information on that. But what he saw when he came through, you know, these are people who are living hand to mouth. But then again, if we go further north, we do see quite large, complicated societies up there. Since there's a textbook in this class, I'm not going to spend much more time talking about those societies. I want you to be able to read through the text um, to do your own investigation as well. What I would instead rather talk about right now is what influence did this particular group play on the South? Your textbook does a fairly good job of uh, covering this. And uh, I just want to augment it by, again, giving a couple of additional pointers here. Uh, so it, they did not have, the Native Americans did not have as profound of an influence on the current culture of the South as uh, as we might think. Now, with that being said, they did have a widespread influence. And that influence is that I would warrant if you pick up any, any map of the South and you start to look at the names of those locations, you're going to see a lot of English names, uh, Bath uh, and things like that. But you're going to also see a good number of Native American names uh, spread across the entire region. Uh, Chickpeag, uh, Cherokee, and so forth and so on. You're going to see, again, those location names applied um, to, to all these different places. You're also going to see a lot of words and concepts that have been applied into um, our particular area. So just a, you know, as a, a quick rundown, Things like bayou and chipmunk and possibly chili and chocolate, That's uh, those are debatable. Some people say that they were Spanish words and some people say that they were influenced in Spanish by Native Americans and, and so forth and so on. But you know, possums and raccoons and skunks and uh, tomatoes and so forth and so on. These are all words that were native to this particular area. And so when you have settlers come from Europe and then they see these things, they're like, what is that thing called? And then they, you know, they ask the native people, and then they they have a word for it. And um, those those words are not always translated the right way. Again, to go back to the two thirty one podcast that I've talked about before. Uh, sometimes, if you have something like Sioux, for example, Sioux uh, was a negative connotation, and so that's not actually the name of the people. But uh, the Europeans misunderstood it and thought that that's what the name of the individuals happened to be. Same thing with the Cherokee. The Cherokee were actually the Slagi. I think I'm saying that the right way, but um, the, the Europeans misunderstood and called them the wrong name. And so the wrong name is now stuck. So, you know, take these things with a grain of salt. But at the same time, look at the prevalence of these Native American names across the entire region. So if we're going to talk about the Native American influence on Southern culture, it really comes down to things like place names and words that are being used. Uh, some concepts, the three, the three sisters, for example, the the crop rotation that they used and that uh, they, uh, excuse me, the Europeans adopted when they got here. Uh, yeah, all of these things are major influences across the entire region. So why didn't this group play a profound influence across the entire region? Why did it not last into the present um, since they were spread all across the entire region? And that is because uh, when Europeans arrived, they made an active attempt to eradicate the culture uh, and influence of this particular group. We see that with the Spanish, um, especially with the Spanish, but we also see it with the English and really any particular group that arrived. Some individuals did work with them, but others did not. We could look at the Incan and the Mayan civilizations and uh, the Spanish reaction to those individuals uh, in those locations. They had only a handful of men, and they were able to uh, capture and eradicate nearly everyone in that particular area. 
And that plays out again and again and again and the uh, interaction between Native Americans and those who would settle across the South and the North and really all of the Americas. Uh, it is a, a significant tragedy and it is not part of what we need to study. And it is one of the approaches we could take to the South and the history of the South. And on that note, it actually makes for a nice transition uh, over to talking about the English, because here's the thing. I want to talk about the American South, and I want to do it in a fair way. And really, when we talk about the American South or any culture in general, what we're talking about is the major movement of individuals from one location to another. And we need to understand those motivations and try to understand them from the perspective of those individuals. For example, the Native Americans, when they moved into the, uh, the Americas, they were uh, propelled by population changes and by climate changes. Um, during this particular time, they again, they could cross a, an ice bridge, according to our understanding of the past as it's presented right now. And so they began to migrate into that area, and then they were not able to migrate back at some point because that bridge disappeared. So they continued to migrate into the, um, these, these two giant continents. And the same thing could be said of the English. And, and by the way, to a lesser extent, the Scots and the Irish as well. And we're going to talk about um, those as one group, even though they're technically two separate groups. But uh, let's just lump all three of those together and, and talk about them in kind of broad terms. So we're going to talk about the English, we're going to talk about the Scots, and the Irish. When I talk about the English and the Scots and the Irish inside of a classroom setting, I always make sure, make sure that I emphasize that we're talking about their motivations and that I, I'm not here to vilify any particular group. To me, uh, if you look back at history, one group is always taking advantage of another group. And it is better to understand the motivations, even if you don't agree with the motivation, so that that way you can understand why things happened. Uh, so let's look at the, the English. I like to pull this quote from John Smith, and that's kind of a mixed bag because John Smith is, you know, sort of the exception rather than the rule. But I think that this quote embodies some of the ways in which um, uh, the rule took place. He said, who can desire more content that hath small means or but only his merit to advance his fortune than to tread and plant that ground he hath purchased by the hazard of his life? If he have but the taste of virtue and magnanimity, what to such a mind can be more pleasant than planting and building a foundation for his posterity, got from the rude earth by God's blessing and his own industry? In other words, it is a great thing to be able to go out and take who you are and your natural talents and to be able to make something in the world of those things and to leave something for future generations, for your, your children and your children's children and so forth and so on. Uh, and where better to be able to do that than in the new world where there is abundant land from a European perspective and you can go and have social mobility, but more social mobility than you could at home. Uh, there's not as much social mobility as, you know, we might be used to today. Uh, we, we're more used to that concept today. And that's, you know, a whole other story there. But um, it, for example, John Smith. John Smith, one of the reasons I think that he was in love with the New World was because he knew what it represented to him. He knew that back in Europe, he had very limited opportunities to be able to advance. And yet, if he came to the New World by the sweat of his brow, he could advance his, his uh, standing in the world, which is one of the reasons it's too bad that he never got a chance to come back. But he got it. And I would say that that's one of the major reasons that uh, English and Scots and Irish came to this location, because, you know, survival, social opportunity, social mobility, the uh, the uh, 
ready availability of land and resources and to be able to set up for, as he says, you know, old posterity, uh, the, your name just by the sweat of your brow, that's what appealed to those individuals. So they didn't come over here because they, they wanted to go about a plan of genocide. Uh, that's not to say that there weren't some maniacs among the bunch. There are always maniacs among, among any bunch, but that is not what drove them here. What drove them here, again, would be those social opportunities. Because what we're really talking about in this particular group, we're not talking about the poorest, we're not talking about the riches. The riches didn't want to come because they, they were quite comfortable in Europe. The poorest couldn't come because they couldn't afford it necessarily. Uh, some of them did manage to finagle their way over here because you know they took on indentured servitude. But uh, we're talking really about the sort of lower middle class, I guess is what you could call it. And these are those who have just enough money to be able to come. They have uh, you know just enough uh, to bring their family over as well and to be able to set up shop and to really make a go of it and to try to you know improve their lives. So when they came over here, again, they did not come to commit genocide. They did not come to um, to eradicate individuals or necessarily to kill any, any, any individuals. But let's be honest, that's that wasn't going to stop them either because they did want to come here. They did want to set up shop. And if somebody was in their way and it happened to be somebody, another individual who had lived on the land for generations, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, that wasn't going to stop these individuals. So it is a conflict. At heart, it is. It's uh, you know a conflict driven of social mobility and social opportunity, uh, but it revolves around that that inherent conflict of motivations. So how did they get here? Because now we need to split the story back into two uh, halves again. We have the English who tended to settle along the coast and take up the harbors. So if we look at places like Charleston, if we look up into Virginia, these are the locations that the English. Uh, tended to settle, whereas the Scots-Irish tended to come into places like the north and then travel down along the mountains. Uh, the, the Great Wagon Road is what it's called. Um, they also arrived in the south where they were, you know, uh, the fur far south, I should say, where they were taken advantage of. Um, places like Louisiana, where they were worked to, to death, honestly. Um, they were put into locations that they were unfamiliar with, with creatures that they were unfamiliar with. If you've ever been to Ireland, you'll know that there are no snakes. It's quite surreal for somebody from uh, a place like North Carolina to go there and you know, be able to poke your hand into a hole and not be worried about being bitten by something that's going to kill you. Uh, so it's the opposite thing when the Irish came over. And they would work in these locations. Uh, and again, they were taken advantage of and uh, they were unfamiliar with uh, the sorts of creatures that lived there. So they, they had it pretty uh, bad in those locations. But you can still see that influence even into the present day, because we have, again, in the places where the English settled, uh, there were larger plantations. You can hear it in the language. We have you know, two words that will stand side by side with two different pronunciations, root and route. And uh, those, the origin of, of those two different pronunciations actually comes from the meeting in the Piedmont region between the English and the Scots and the Irish. So again, the, the Scots and the Irish are generally speaking, up in the mountains, and we have the English along the plains. Uh, the English really like places like Virginia, and they really like places like South Carolina. And uh, quite frankly, North Carolina just kind of ended up being a dumping ground for, you know, Virginia, because uh, there was kind of a big swamp in the way. And uh, those people who were not wanted in Virginia oftentimes migrated into North Carolina. Also, North Carolina wasn't doing very well with harbors along the coast. It's known as the graveyard of the Atlantic for a good reason, because there's not 
there aren't many good places for a ship to dock there. So basically, you could go into the Chesapeake Bay or you could go down to like some place like Charleston uh, or go even a little bit further south than that. That gives you a kind of a layout of where these individuals settled. And it gives you an indication of how they still impact our culture in the American South to the present. We have uh, place names, again, that were named after these individuals. Uh, Carolina itself takes its name from Carolus, which is the Latinate version of Charles. And uh, so, yes, the Carolina is named after King Charles, and then it was split into North and South Carolina. Uh, but, you know, places like Georgia, again, I've mentioned Bath a, a couple minutes ago, these place names still apply. So you're very likely to see English speaking place names or Native American place names. Those are the, the two that stand side by side. Uh, we also have dietary influences. Uh, we have, you know, when they lived in Europe, they made an oatmeal. And when they got here, they began to make the, sort of the same thing. But they made it out of corn, which today is what we call grits. And this is a well-known delicacy across the entire South. In fact, uh, just sitting here talking about it as a Southerner, it's making my mouth water. So it is definitely something that we have in the region. But those aren't the only influences. There are others uh, that we'll be getting to as the semester progresses. Things like religion, um, there's some of the religious ideas that they brought with them, both hindered and helped the South. We'll be looking at the Anglican faith, for example, and how unsuccessful it was across the entire region. Uh, we'll be also looking at the influence that some of the, the new ideas in Protestantism began to play and the way in which it unified the identity of the colonies uh, when we got to the first and second Great Awakenings and how those basically, I would argue, were a kind of dress rehearsal for the American Revolution itself. Uh, in addition to that, we have concepts that have still uh, still manifest themselves in Southern culture today. If you go up in the mountains, for example, you really see this, uh, I think a little bit more than you see it out along the coast, but ideas like tight-knit families and, and personal honor and um, vendettas. So if you if you go up into the mountains um, and you hurt somebody's feelings and they, they don't like you, they're really not gonna like you, and uh, they they may take that up, and their entire family may take that up. And I and I say that with every bit of affection. By the way, I love being in the mountains, and I love the people there. Um, that's where my wife's family is from, and so we spend a great deal of time up there. And I I know these people well, and I I uh, would say that that is indeed the the feeling that they have, and that feeling comes from again the Scots and the Irish. Uh, to back up just for a second, I'm just going to make this quick note because I'm really covering hundreds and hundreds of years of history here and trying to point you to how those hundreds of years of history have manifested in the present. But um, the Scots and the Irish were you know, fighting back against the English for a long period of time. So there's an animosity that existed between these particular groups. And I would say that that animosity still exists as kind of an echo today. Um, there's a sense in the mountainous regions that uh, they're suspicious of people that live down on the, the plains and, you know, in the larger plantation areas and the major cities and things like that. And I would say, again, that that's a bit of an echo that comes down to the present from this distant past, which is really what this, this podcast episode is all about, is how did this past, how did these groups influence the present? Okay. And on that note, I'm trying to keep this podcast as short as possible, but this is a very complicated topic, and it's one that we're going to be covering throughout the rest of the entire semester. I'm going to go ahead and move to the fourth major group. The fourth major group would be Africans. 
Africans have profoundly influenced the culture of the South, um, not always in direct ways, but uh, profoundly influenced it in many important ways. Africans arrived to the American South uh, via slavery, and they arrived on slave ships. And this is a topic that we'll be talking about, a very difficult topic. I'll go ahead and say we'll be talking about as we move through the entire semester. Uh, when we get to the race section, which is uh, about four weeks in the class during a regular 16-week semester, we'll be spending a lot more time talking about it. So if you're thinking right now, oh, you didn't give as much attention to the, you know, the African influence, I'm not in this podcast, because we'll be spending so much time this semester talking about it. But I do want to give you an overview. Uh, we had Europeans who began trading with uh, Africans for uh, human cargo. And this occurred with the Portuguese and the Spanish. And the Portuguese and the Spanish basically were looking for workers for the New World um, and in and, and other cases as well in, in Europe, but definitely for the New World once they started establishing colonies. And so they began the triangular trade. And essentially, in a nutshell, they would take goods from Europe to Africa and trade them for people. Uh, they would take the people to the New World and trade them there uh, for raw materials. And then they would take the raw materials back to Europe. And uh, this is the, the basic pattern that was followed by a great number of European civilizations for a long period of time. In what I just said, you probably heard me say that... Uh, Humans were traded for manufactured goods in Africa. Humans were traded by Africans. This is one of the uh, the things that I sometimes hear miscategorized or uh, uh, misapplied, I guess is the best way to put it, by those who know just enough history to be dangerous, but not enough to actually understand what they're talking about. And so when they say things like, oh, yes, but Africans traded in human cargo too. Yes, that is very true. But that is not the entire story. The entire story is that the concept of slavery in Africa was very, very different than it was for Europeans. Um, slaves in Africa were uh, not treated ill. They were actually treated quite well. They had, uh, they were, you know, invited to the table. They would sit at the table. Some uh, Africans, and I guess you could call it indentured themselves, but uh, enslaved themselves with others to be able to pay out debts and, and things of that nature. So this was a much more humane slavery. Now, that's not to say that that was how it was all the time. It's always dangerous to make broad statements because there will always be exceptions to any particular rule. But with that foundation, when Europeans showed up and started trading for uh, human cargo, this was an opportunity for them to be able to continue a practice that they were already engaged in uh, without fully necessarily, I would say, fully understanding what the consequences were. And by the time they did understand the consequences, it was a bit too late because, I mean, let's face it, if, if you have European show up with guns or something like that, and they're willing to trade people for those guns, the guns give you an advantage. And so you want to have those guns so that that way your group of individuals has that advantage over other individuals. So you're going to trade people and you're going to trade them for those weapons. And, uh, once you understand what the Europeans might be doing with those people, um, again, it's too late. You need the guns because if you don't get the guns, a different group of people is going to get the guns. So again, keep in mind that that's a, a very broad way to put it. Um, and it's a lighting on awful lot of history. I mean, we could talk about some of the major civilizations that existed in Africa and the collapse of those civilizations and then the warring tribes that emerged out of this and how this factored into it as well. 
But what it boils down to is uh, Europeans were hesitant to go into the interior of Africa. Um, you know, they're white or uh, much lighter skinned. And so they immediately are seen as invaders because they, they don't belong there. Um, and, uh, you know, two, there are diseases in Africa that Europeans are not prepared for, which, you know, the disease is something that we didn't even really get a chance to talk about with Native Americans. It was something that eradicated uh, millions of them once uh, Europeans arrived. So this is sort of like the Euro uh, Europeans arriving in, um, in North America in reverse. So they couldn't go into the interior. They were trading along the west coast of Africa, and those nations, and then picking up those individuals and bringing them to the New World. Once in the New World, um, the influence that they had was, I mean, let's, let's be frank, quite minimal at first, at least ostentatiously. And the reason for that is because um, European culture exuded an influence across everything. And that meant that any other influence was ignored or not written down or not necessarily admitted to, I guess is the easiest way to put it. Because quite frankly, Africans were having an influence. They were having an influence on uh, things like music, but a very subtle one. Uh, they were having an influence on, on things like uh, uh, language, but a very subtle one. And those things have played out into the present. We would not have rock and roll if, if Africans had not come to the new world. Uh, we have specific dialects in English in the present that are derived from African languages. Uh, copula deletion, this is one of the easiest ways to understand it. African languages have copula deletion, which means that they do not have a linking word um, when a person is being described in terms of an adjective at the end of a sentence. So she nice is not broken English, not at all. This is an African influence upon English in the present. So if we're going to talk about this particular group, again, the influences are profound and they're all across the board. And in some cases they're subtle, in some cases they're direct, but our culture as it is in the present would not exist as it does in the American South and really the, all the United States, if not for the influence of Africans um, upon our culture. And I hate to cut off talking about this group here, um, because I, I do feel like I've cheated a little bit, but I also know that, that we're going to spend a lot of time with this going forward, and so I'm not going to spend as much time with it right now. I do want to note at least one uh, influence that we could kind of point to, just just in case you would want to know this, you know, for an exam or something, and that is that if we look back in time and we look at uh, the the roles that Europeans played, Europeans had very decided roles for males and females. And those carried over into the new world as well. And so the English had very particular ideas about what women should and shouldn't do versus Africans. In African culture, there are many powerful women. And so when Africans came to the new world, they were already used to that concept. But it was further compounded by the fact that, it, you know, once they became slaves, they all had the equal amount of power, which is to say none. Men and women both had the same amount of power. And so this concept of, you know, there are powerful women and then, you know, once all of these individuals arrive here and nobody has any power, so they're all completely equal to each other, continues into the present. Because quite frankly, once uh, slavery, at least on, on paper, ended, um, African women were not going to just say, oh, you know what, that's okay, we'll go be submissive to you now. And instead, they said, you know, now we're free and we're going to continue to make our own decisions and we're going to continue to expect to be respected and we're going to continue to be our own individuals 
And so that has, again, profoundly shaped, uh, shaped the present as well. Uh, concepts of, of things like you know, marriage were influenced by that. Uh, concepts of uh, equality, uh, concepts of, of individual power and authority that I continue. I always point to Medea. I think that Medea, yes, I understand Tyler Perry plays a character, but I think Medea is a really excellent example. She's a powerful black woman who's not going to take anything from anybody. And I always encourage my students, okay, now try to think of a character, a white female character from, I would say, 20 or 30 years ago who could be the exact same. And the only one that I can think of that really comes to mind from uh, older movies would be uh, Thelma and Louise, of all people. So these are powerful white women, but they, I mean, they're considered outlaws. And so that's, um, that illustrates the difference in how gender roles have manifested between these two groups and the influence that Africans um, have had upon our particular culture. Okay, that wraps up the four main groups, but now I'm going to give you sort of like a sudden death over time. And this is uh, by no means exhaustive. I am quite aware that there are tons and tons and tons of groups that have played an influence across the region. But I'm going to give you the, the sort of quick rundown of additional groups that have had an influence. They're just not necessarily counted as the four main groups because their influence is so specific to, uh, to certain places, such as the French. The French have a profound influence in places like Louisiana. And the reason is, is because that was originally a French colony until uh, Thomas Jefferson purchased it from Napoleon. And uh, that the influence of French culture in that particular region is still profoundly felt into the present. It has melded with the culture of the South. So you can go there and get like shrimp and grits. And that is everything I just said a second ago about the, you know, the diet of the Scots-Irish. And it's been combined with the sort of French influence. It is an odd city, but it has the thumbprint of uh, French all over it. In fact, you still hear French spoken readily across the entire city. It's my understanding that they even had a news broadcast for a long period of time uh, that was still in French. But it is also very much a southern city at the same time. You have the Germans as well. Um, in certain places in North Carolina, you can still hear German being spoken. I believe it was something up to like 70 years ago. And uh, then you had a world war that took place. And because you're shooting at people that speak German, suddenly all the people that wanted to speak German here no longer wanted to do it. But you still see you know, that influence on place names. So if you go to Charlotte, North Carolina, Charlotte is named after a German princess, Mecklenburg. Uh, you see those words, you might see them as well in places like Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem had a, a German-speaking population uh, up until, again, fairly recently. And they still had German festivals believe that they actually do still have German festivals in the present, but um, the, you know, the, the pride in German ancestry sort of evaporated there for a certain period of time. You have the Moravians, which would be Czech and Austrian descent. These, uh, again, set up shop in places like uh, around the Winston-Salem area. And uh, if you grew up in Winston-Salem, you remember taking trips there to, to look at that uh, when you were a kid. So I just want to note that influence. Uh, you also have and this is going back to Stanley County. And I, I want to make sure that I put this one in because it's such an important group. You have the Hmong. The Hmong have a profound influence on Southern culture at the moment. And that influence is developing. And it's very interesting to watch because, you know, I've just spent all this time talking about the four main groups in the South uh, that have profoundly influenced the South. But now we have the Hmong and that influence is taking place right now. Um, in short, 
the Vong helped the Americans when they were fighting in Vietnam, and uh, they they were a traveling people that did not necessarily have one particular land that they stuck to. But uh, the Americans promised to bring them back with them and to protect them when the war was over. When the war was ending, when the Americans were leaving, they they grabbed uh, a great number of Hmong and they brought them to the United States with them. Unfortunately, the United States did not uphold its promise very well, and they just basically uh, put them all across the entire United States in certain locations without necessarily giving them the resources they needed to be able to survive. So there is a bit of a conflict these days between Hmong culture and the, the larger cultures. Uh, they are prevalent in places like California, up into the Northwest as well, but they've also traveled into the, uh, the South, and there are a good number of them in Stanley County. And uh, I, you know, I want to encourage you as much as possible, go out and, and, for example, participate in the Hmong New Year that takes place in November. And it's uh, celebrated, I, I, the last I heard was in Newton, North Carolina, but uh, you know, they may, they may have moved it because of the pandemic. I'm recording this in 2021. Uh, also, last one, last group I want to mention: immigrants from Central America. That you know, believe it or not, and a lot of people are like, "What? I never knew that." Uh, Spanish is uh, spoken more across the entire world than English. English is actually the third most prevalent language. Um, it is uh, uh, Mandarin Chinese, which is, that's its own story, and then we get to Spanish, and then we get to English. And the reason that it's spoken more across the entire world is because Spain was uh, quite prevalent and you know traveling all over the entire world and, and creating new colonies for itself. And so Spanish is you know it has a profound influence on our culture today because uh, individuals are coming from Central America into the United States uh, for opportunities. Uh, some of them are coming away from really terrible uh, political situations that they're they're trying to evade. And they have set up in uh, you know different locations all across this region. I'm from Concord, North Carolina, and in Concord, North Carolina, we have a, a section of town now that is uh, largely in Spanish. When I do this lecture in front of a classroom, I actually have pictures of that. So we have, uh, and you have to keep in mind, my Spanish pronunciation is terrible, but Supermercado Lupitas, which is right there um, on uh, let's see, Cabarrus Avenue, I believe, is what it's on. It, you, I think I have that right. At any rate, it's on Cabarrus Avenue. And uh, yeah, we, we have this profound influence of this group across the entire region. One of the reasons also, though, I want to mention this particular group is because if you look at some of the evidence, there is almost a kind of modern slavery that's taking place with this group. And that's that's a shame. And the reason is, is because um, they are a vulnerable population. They come to the area they are looking for jobs. They're hard workers. And, uh, you know, people will go out and hire them for a day and then not pay them. And the reason that they don't pay them is because they know that if they the individuals protest, that they could take them to uh, immigration services and have them deported. Also, there are um, individuals who set up trailers and pick up groups of migrant workers and force them into the trailers and essentially force them to work until... Um, either they are extremely sick and they'll just report them to immigration services and have them sent back home or um, until the season's over. And so, you know, this is something you need to be aware of. And it is something that's taking place across the uh, the American South. And that's why when I talk about the influence of groups, I like to talk about this group, at least in brief, to say that they have an influence because, uh, by the way, America is one, uh, the United States is one of the only cultures in the entire world that's not at least bilingual, and so uh, 
that's a good thing that we have uh, you know Spanish across the entire region at this point. Uh, but at the same time, they have an influence upon the culture of the South, and it is uh, currently taking place as well. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and end here. This has turned into a fairly long podcast, and I'm just going to say, personally speaking, I'm a little dissatisfied with how this one went. And the reason is, is because I feel like I could talk about each one of these groups for an hour, and uh, I try to condense this as much as possible. So all I want to say here at the end is, please, if you're listening to this, go out and read more about each one of these groups. They have played a profound influence across the entire region. And I did not do them the justice that they deserve. Um, I left out a great number of details, but I just try to give you an overview. I try to get you, give you an idea of how they arrived in the region. And I try to give you an idea of the influence that they still play in our culture today. Um, again, even so, there's so much more to say, and there's so many great books out there that can help you to understand this far better than uh, a fairly short podcast like this can. Okay, see you next time.